have your Bibles with you, we are turning to the Old Testament. Now, I know we're in 1 Corinthians 14. So keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 14 because we will get there. But we are going to begin reading in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you bought half a Bible today, I bet you bought the wrong half. Deuteronomy chapter 18. One of the most uh, outstanding features of the Christian faith is that the great and eternal God has come out of his privacy and spoken. We don't uh, get past the third verse of Genesis chapter 1 when we read, And God said. And the refrain goes right through Genesis 1. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And it says it over and over again so that you know it was so just because he said it. It is because he said. Now that's not the first time God spoke, apparently. And if I'm reading Hebrews 11 verse 3 correctly, it tells me that before I get to Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and the worlds were formed. I take the chaos in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 as a cataclysmic judgment upon the earth and a recreation out of darkness into light, out of chaos into order, out of ugliness into beauty. And God did it by the power of his word. But that's not the first time God spoke. And if you and I had the time today, and we don't, but if we did, we could go through several verses in the New Testament that talk about conversations that occur between the Father and the Son. And you will know that the Son prayed to the Father. And you will know that the Son only taught the things that he heard his Father tell him to teach. So we know that between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to the Gospels, there is what we call intra-Trinitarian communication. Now that is to say, before God ever formed the universe, before he ever flung the stars into place, there was conversation between the three persons of the Holy Trinity. Now that tells me something. 
It tells me that for whatever reason God made the world and for whatever reason God made mankind, it was not because he was lonely, because he wasn't. Jesus said in John chapter 17, concerning the love the Father has with us, that we might understand that love and that we might understand the love that the Father had for the Son before the world began. So there was a loving relationship between the Father and the Son before time ever began. John 17, at the end of the prayer, Jesus said that, uh, asked that the Father return him after the resurrection to the glory that I had with you before the world began. And so we know there was a shared glory and a shared love and a shared communication between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world ever began. And that relationship was a full and satisfying relationship between the members of the Trinity. So for whatever reason God made us, it was not because of a need to love, because that love was exercised and fully answered and satisfied within God himself. And he never made us because he needed someone to talk to, because there was an eternal conversation going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he made the world, he then made mankind in his image. And God spoke directly and personally to Adam and Eve. We know from Genesis chapter 4 that he spoke directly and personally to Cain. We know from Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch walked with God. And I take it that in that companionship with Yahweh, there was conversation. Because you go to Genesis chapter 6 and you find that Noah walked with God and God talked to Noah personally and directly. Then you'll find that when you get to Abraham, God spoke to Abraham. And Abraham heard the voice of God repeatedly in his personal pilgrimage of faith. And I take it that the voice of God to Adam and Eve and to Cain and to Enoch and to Noah and to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, and the patriarchs was an audible voice. Seems to me that when you read Genesis chapter 18, God is having a conversation with Abraham inside the tent, and Sarah is outside laughing because she can hear the conversation inside the tent. She was eavesdropping on the Almighty, if you don't mind. Only a woman could do that. But I take it she heard outside the tent the audible voice of God. After God called Abraham and said he was going to create of him a great nation, 
the leadership passed eventually to Moses. And you and I know that Moses and God spoke together. Then God told Moses that he was to go up to the mountain. And when he went up to the mountain, he said, I want you to gather the children of Israel around this mountain. I don't want them to ascend the mountain. I want them to gather around the base of the mountain. And uh, there I want to uh, speak so that they can hear me. And Moses got the children of Israel together, told them to put a boundary around the mountain, but not to go up it, lest they come under divine judgment. And then as God came down on the third day to give the law to Moses, the children of Israel were terrified, for they saw the smoke and the lightning, and they heard the peals of thunder as the Shekinah enveloped the mountain of Sinai. And they were so terrified, they said to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, this is too close for comfort. From now on, you can listen to God, because we're terrified. If we listen anymore, we will die. But you will be our intermediary, and you will listen to God and talk with God, and then you can come to us and give us the message that God has given you. And you will find that repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Because the people were scared, they appointed Moses to be their intermediary. And it is at that point that the whole prophetic office began. Until then, divine communication was personal and direct. And that leads us to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This is Moses' words to the children of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to the, my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not, come to does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And so in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 onwards, you will find that God had 
now promised a prophetic office that began with Moses, and he would raise up uh, prophets, and he would put uh, his words in their mouths. Now, ultimately, this is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And you will find in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, uh, she says, when the prophet comes, when Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. He's the man with the answers. And Jesus said, he who speaks to you, I am the one. He who speaks to you, I am he. And uh, he claimed to be the prophet. Well, this is the prophecy that that ultimate prophet would come. Someone would come. And God would put his words in the prophet's mouth. And if you go down to uh, verse uh, 19, you read these words, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So the prophet is not just speaking off the top of his head. He is speaking the words of God, not just the word of God, but the very words of God. And for that reason, the people of Israel should pay attention. Now that is not only a prophecy regarding the Lord Jesus, but it's the beginning of the prophetic uh, office. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you hear even David speaking as a prophet. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him and puts his word on David's tongue. And then you go to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 4, and he speaks about God's word being on his tongue. And that's why all the Old Testament prophets began their oracles with, thus saith the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord, because through the work of the Holy Spirit, the word of God was put inside the mouth of the prophet, and when he spoke, he spoke the very words of God. For that reason, if a prophet dared to get it wrong, he was put to death. He was discounted as a false prophet. And let me tell you, as you read the Old Testament through the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular, you will come across the false prophets that prophesied not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but out of their own imagination. Out of their own imagination. In other words, they conjured up things to say but they, God had never spoken. They were speaking presumptuously, and the penalty for that was they were to be cut off. It was a blasphemous act of presumption, and they uh, were placed under the penalty of death. Well, as it turns out, you have the prophetic office operating in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, you've got the prophetic office operating as well. You've got prophets in the Old Testament and you've got prophets in the New Testament. Now, mostly people are going to say, but the prophets in the New Testament are different. They're different prophets. You've got a different game going on in the New Testament than you have in the Old. So with that, we will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where we are working in your exposition of this book, and we will pick up reading at verse 29.
where Paul writes, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. It seems to me that if we were to compare the prophet of the Old Testament with the prophet of the New Testament, we are talking about one and the same office, one and the same gift, one and the same person. And the reason I say that, uh, well, there are many. The first reason I would say that is simply because you find the word prophet and prophesy in the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, you find exactly the same word. He's a prophet, and what's he doing? He's doing the same thing as the Old Testament prophets did. He's prophesying. No change in language. As I go to the Old Testament, I find that there were men and women prophets in the Old Testament. I know that's going to shock some of you, but Deborah was a prophetess, Miriam was a prophetess, Huldah was a prophetess, and I find not only Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Nahum uh, as prophets, but there were female prophets in the Old Testament. When I come into the New Testament, I find the same. In fact, in chapter 11, I find women praying and prophesying in the assembly of the Lord's people. And so it seems to me that women prophesied both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the reason for that is it's the same gift. It's the same ability that is given both in the Old and in the New. A lot of people will say, but no, the gift of prophecy very different in the New Testament to the Old for a different purpose. In the Old Testament, it was foretelling. It was prediction. In the New Testament, it is forthtelling. And if you listen hard enough around to some Bible teachers, they will try and explain that difference. But it won't cut any mustard. Because the Old Testament, it was predictive prophecy. In the New Testament, if you look at the book of Acts and again in First Timothy, where Paul talks about prophecies that were made over Timothy and his ministry, you will find that the prophetic word was foretelling as much as it was in the Old Testament. It was predictive. Agabus in the book of Acts predicted there would be a severe famine coming upon Jerusalem, and it happened. 
And the, the, the prophecy that Agabus gave was a predictive prophecy, the same kind as the Old Testament people gave. But they say, oh, but in the New Testament it's different. This is not so much uh, uh, Old Testament type prophecy. This is about comforting the people of God and speaking a word of comfort. And so they go into First uh, Corinthians 14 and they point that out in the first couple of verses that prophecy is meant to encourage and strengthen and comfort the people. But what do you do with Isaiah? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that her sins have been paid double. And especially from chapter 40 right through to 66, you get the constant words of comfort coming from the Old Testament. Why? Because it's the same kind of a gift. 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about comfort. The Old Testament's talking about comfort. The Old Testament is predictive prophecy, but so is the prophecy recorded in the book of Acts and in 1 Timothy. The prophecy of the Old Testament was instructive, but so is the prophecy of 1 Corinthians 14. Put your finger on verse 31. For you can all prophesy in turn, that is all the prophets, so that everyone may be instructed. You say, but it can't be the same kind of instruction. It has to be a lesser kind of instruction. Go back. What came in the Old Testament was a revelation. The word of God was put on the tongue of the prophet and he revealed uh, the purpose and the plan of God. Well, that's the same stuff in 1 Corinthians 14. Have a look at that, verse 30. And if a revelation comes to someone sitting down, a what comes? A revelation. So this is not a prophet who's just got a hunch after a bad lunch. This is a direct revelation coming through the New Testament prophet, the same kind of revelation that came through an Old Testament prophet. Now, as I go through, I find in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit is very present with the prophet, and what he says, the Spirit says. But you find the same thing in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit said, separate unto me, Saul and Barnabas. Now, how did that message come in Acts 13? Through the prophets. They spoke through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems that there is not a lot of difference. You say, but there is a big difference because when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, these prophecies have to be tested. They have to be tested because they're not as accurate or as authoritative as Old Testament prophecy. But if you read in Deuteronomy 18 with me, and if you want to later on read Deuteronomy 13, both places Moses says this is how you test a prophet. If his words don't come true, he's a false prophet. If his words are not consistent with divine revelation already given, don't follow him. If a prophet stands up and gives you a prophecy and tries to lead you after other gods, don't listen to the man. 
So as you go through the Old Testament, you will find in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, there are tests to be applied to Israel's prophets. Just like there's a test here to be applied to the New Testament prophet. Same gift, same standard. What was a revelation in the Old Testament is a revelation in the New. A lot of people come to verse 29 and they say, but you see the New Testament prophets were not always as accurate and as authoritative as the Old Testament. That's why it had to be tested. Why else would it say, and the others should weigh carefully what is said? Well, the reason that prophecy had to be tested in the New Testament is that there were false prophets operating in the New Testament. It's not that the prophecy itself was faulty. The man was faulty. And if the man was faulty, he was going to utter things that were false and untrue. And for that reason, All the prophecies had to be weighed in the New Testament as much as they had to be weighed in the Old. You can imagine Jeremiah flunking on four prophecies and Israel still taking him seriously. No way, Jose. No Jewish man I would ever know would ever, if he'd been let down four or five times by a prophet, put any credence on that individual. It'd be all over Red Rover. And so when we come to the New Testament, these prophecies have to be weighed, not because they were inaccurate, not because they were faulty, but because of false prophets. And you read about them in the pastoral epistles, and you read about them in Peter's letters, and you read about them in John's letters. False prophets were uh, everywhere in the New Testament church. And... uh, Their prophecies were to be tested, which is why Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, test everything. Do not despise prophets, but test them. And when you've tested them, hold fast to that which is good. But you should test the prophets. You should be discriminating. See, we find this hard to believe that there could be false prophets operating in the New Testament church. You say, oh, we don't have any here. Well, congratulations. You must have a wonderful sieve at the door where you manage to sieve them all out. It's always very difficult to me when you look at people, you'd expect someone who was a false prophet to at least look ugly, wouldn't you? I, I mean... If someone's going to come up with a heresy, shouldn't they look like a heretic? And have you ever wondered in your wildest imagination what they look like? Well, to me, a heretic, you could always smell them. You could always see them. They would be kind of funny little people, all bent over and hunched, and they would have a, a hooked nose with a big fat wart on the end of it, and they would have a three-corner black hat, and they'd be wearing a T-shirt that on the front said, Beware, and on the back had a picture of the devil. And then you'd be able to say, Oh, watch out for him, you see. But the problem is that false teachers and false prophets and heretics look exactly like you and I. You can be sitting next to one and never know it. 
because you can't tell by the way they look. Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. What's the fruit of a false prophet? Well, he said, well, you'd look at his character. I wouldn't look at his character. If I go out to an orange tree and see its fruit, I expect it to be an orange. If I go out to a fig tree and see its fruit, I expect to find a fig. And if I go to a prophet and look for his fruit, I expect a prophecy, a genuine prophecy. Something that comes from the mouth of God that is fully accurate and fully authoritative. So when Jesus said about the false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, by their fruits you will know them, the fruit is the fruit of their prophecy. Is it true? Is it commensurate with revelation already given? And is their predictive stuff true? Or are they a a hundred miles out? The fruit of a prophet is not his character. The fruit of a prophet is the accuracy and the authority of his prophecy. Now when we come into the New Testament, people are going to start using this idea of a prophetic utterance or a prophetic word, then that word, if it is prophetic, comes A, from the mouth of God, who is all-knowing, and who, by virtue of his holiness, can never make a mistake. If that is the true prophetic word from God, it will be 100% accurate 100% of the time. Or it never came from the God of the Bible. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make error. You say, but these people are only human. Well, Mary was only human. She was a sinner. She said, my soul magnifies God my Savior. But when the Holy Spirit did a work in Mary, a sinful woman produced a perfect result called the Holy Son of God. Was Paul a sinner? Well, as I'm reading Romans chapter 7, I figure he is. The good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not, I do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Was Paul a sinner? Is the Pope Catholic? Last time I checked. Well, could a sinful man like Paul write 13 letters of the New Testament without error? Yes. As sinful as he was, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he brought to us the perfect Word of God. We keep on saying, but these people are only human. They're going to get it wrong once in a while. Not if it's got to do anything with the Holy Spirit. They won't get it wrong once in a while. If this is from the Spirit of God and that prophetic ministry is from the Spirit of God, it will be 100% accurate 100% of the time and it will be 100% authoritative or it's a false claim altogether. On this kind of thing, I go from being dogmatic to bulldogmatic. And I go completely bullish because I am looking for certainty. I'm not here for uncertainty. I am looking for the word from God. I'm not here to have the wool pulled over my eyes. It matters to me 
whether what I believe and stake my life on is true or not. Absolutely it does. And then we say, but doesn't the scripture say we prophesy in part? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 9, yes it does. But that doesn't mean that prophecies are partially true and partially untrue. It doesn't mean that a prophecy is 50% accurate and 50% suspect. The reason Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.9 we prophesy in part is because even with the gift of prophecy operating in the New Testament church, we still don't have all the information we would like. God has only revealed a certain amount of that in the Old Testament, in the prophetic and apostolic ministry of the New, and even in the complete Word of God. We do not have everything we would like to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And I hear people saying, But when we get to heaven, we will know everything. I doubt that too. I think we're going to spend all of eternity learning because there is so much we do not know. We prophesy in part does not mean we get it wrong. It means it comes a little at a time, a little at a time. But the little that comes is 100% accurate 100% of the time. Or it doesn't come from God. We say to ourselves, but surely there's a need for a prophetic ministry in the church today. Surely we need to hear a word from God. Why? Well, because the world's changed so much. I mean, we're facing issues that the New Testament world never faced. Now life is way more complex. We have situations that the Apostle Paul would never have dreamed of. Not so fast, Rastus. There isn't that much difference between our world and that world. The scripture says, no temptation or test has come your way, but that which is common to man. But that which is common to man. And our issues are not that new. We seem to be sophisticatedly arrogant to assume that our problems are so new we need a special word from God. Our problems are as old as the human race itself. It's the same old, same old that you read all through the pages of the Old Testament. And it seems to me that we will never come up with one issue that as a New Testament believer we face that is not already covered in the pages of Holy Scripture. You think of it. It covers marriage, it covers divorce, it covers remarriage. It covers business of life and it covers the business of death. It talks about money, it talks about poverty, it talks about sexuality, it talks about lesbianism, it talks about homosexuality, it talks about abortion, it talks about government, it talks about power, it talks about money, it talks about work, it talks about relationships, it talks about relationships between believers, it talks about relationships with unbelievers, it talks about the believer's place in the world, it talks about work, it talks about employers and employees, it talks all about friendships, it talks all about children, it talks about mothers and fathers, it talks about parenting, it talks about how to run a believing home. I don't know one issue that we face in life that is not already covered in this book. Not one. 
Now, if that's true, why am I needing some insightful word from God? If the matter is already covered in the pages of this book. So when you come to 1 Corinthians 14, he regulates the prophets, and then he says, but listen, first of all, you must weigh the prophecy. And when it comes to weighing the prophecy, women should remain silent, for that is a leadership role in the church. And when it comes to adjudicating and interrogating the prophet and a prophecy that is not the role of a woman because God has placed authority into the hands of men and not to women. And so I take 1 Corinthians 14 and the silence imposed on women there in that particular passage to be a silence about interrogating and adjudicating over prophecies that have to be weighed. But you will see in verse 39, he says, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Well, why is he saying that? Because the prophetic gift is still there. You say to me, but don't you believe in the prophetic gift today? With a capital no. And the reason is that in Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and those are New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. That's a foundation that was laid a long time ago that gave me all the information I need to live my life now until Jesus comes. Have you seen the size of this thing? That's about six times fatter than the Thai Happy Telephone Directory. There is more information to occupy your mind and mine in this book than we care to ever imagine. So let me finish as we close out with a reading from 2 Timothy, if I may. A reading from 2 Timothy because our time has gone. But I want to read to you these lovely words that Paul has written to Timothy. In verse 16, all scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed. Do you know what he's saying here? All scripture has come out of the mouth of God. That's why we call the Bible the Word of God, because it finds its origin in the mouth of God. And if these words came out of the mouth of God, then this is the Word of God. And if it's the Word of the God that this Bible talks about, it's a Word that is always true. For God cannot lie. If this comes from his mouth, This has to be as true as the person of God himself. Now, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, back up to verse 14. But as for you, continue of what you have learned and how you have become convinced of, Continue of what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, three things real fast. The scriptures can make you wise for salvation. 
The scriptures can make you wise for sanctification. They are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why do you need a word from God? When the scripture is full of stuff to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in right living. So it's not only useful for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's useful for everyday life. And it's useful not only for salvation and sanctification, but for service so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The man of God, there is a technical sense, and what he's saying to Timothy is this, Timothy, you know what you need in these desperate days in which you are ministering? You need to take hold of the book. You need to take hold of the scriptures. They brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, and they can do it for the people you are teaching. You need it because you're going to have to rebuke and correct and train in righteousness. And if you take the scriptures, Timothy, you don't need anything else. These scriptures will make you thoroughly equipped, not partially equipped, for every good work, not some. And so I come to this passage and I say to myself, if prophecy is a foundational gift in the New Testament, then it seems to me that with the... At the advent of the Word of God, I have all in my hands that I need for salvation, for sanctification, and for service. I need nothing more. It's all here. So what do we do with this information? Two things, if you don't mind me saying so. The first thing I think we need to do is be very careful. We live in a world where people, to me, are talking a lot of nonsense at least 50% of the time. And I'm hearing this and hearing that and hearing another thing. And we use language ourselves that, to me, is not quite right. And I hear it a lot. The Lord told me. And I, I think I know what you mean. That's a very serious comment to take on anybody's lips. The Lord spoke to me as another serious one. The Lord revealed to me, be very careful. I used to use that language and then I changed my mind. I think sometimes we set ourselves up in language that makes us expect things that we can never really expect. Now, if you were to say to me, I believe the Lord told me, then we've got a safety clause. If you say, I believe the Lord told me, then you're leaving the door open a little bit. There's a wee wedge there where you say, but I might be wrong. And the rest of us will sit down and wait and watch because there's a high degree of probability there. But I think we need to be careful of that kind of talk when we use it ourselves, but even more so when we're hearing it over Shine TV, when you turn the radio on and the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. That stuff is all suspect to me. Listen to me. It's my privilege to have spent a good deal of my life studying this book. 
When I come to places like this and go to other churches as I have Sunday by Sunday, well-meaning people will open in prayer, and they will say, Lord, speak to us through your servant, Jeff. i got to stop you right there and say, don't pray that prayer when I'm around. That's Old Testament language. And I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm an ordinary person like you who has spent some time studying this book and all I am offering to you are the fruits of my observation and my work. I would love to lay it on you and say God told me. So you better sit up, shape up, and start shaking. But I can't tell you that. That's a power game that comes out of my own insecurity. All I can say is, as I understand this book, this is what I'm offering you. And now it is your responsibility, like the Bereans, to go home and take the book and check out what I've said. And if it measures up, then there's a good chance we're interpreting the Word of God correctly, and it needs to be obeyed. And if what I say doesn't measure up, then you need to come back with a question and say, Harry, you're falling short here, here, and here. And together we need to sit down and pursue the truth until we find it. But I'm not here to say the Lord told me, or thus saith the Lord. So my first point is this, let's be careful about the things we listen to and the way we talk. My second point is very simple. If this book contains all there is for salvation, sanctification, and service, it seems to be we need to be people of the book. Now, I know that we want to be people of the Spirit. Don't get me wrong. You know, as you walk through life, you've got to ditch this side of formalism and a ditch this side of fanaticism, and it seems to me you're going to get your wheel in one of those ruts sometime or the other. And I don't like fanaticism, but I don't like formalism either. I like someone who knows the presence of the Spirit. And you can feel it in their life and in the way they communicate with you. The grace of God is upon them. And you can sense the love and the mercy of God as you interact with that person. I don't like dead formalism and judgmentalism. I hate that stuff. But I have to say that if this book contains all that Timothy needed for salvation, sanctification, and service, then it's, it, it, you can take it by faith. It's all I need. Now, let me make an application of that. It seems to me that Christian young people today ought to seriously consider setting aside at least one year of their time to give serious attention to reflecting on this book. I say this to our shame. There are Mormon young people in the city of Hamilton today who have gone to work and saved so that they can serve the causes of Mormon doctrine for two years at their own expense. And we hope to accidentally put our faith together by a casual reading of this thing once a month. And it will not do. And it will not do for your life. And it will not do for God's church.
If God has come out of his privacy, and if God has spoken, and this is his word, you and I need to be people of this book. And then we will become the people of God. And now, our Father, we do pray that you will continue to help us in the pilgrimage of faith, in the journey that we face. We long to know your presence and we long to know the certainty of your word. But your word is our lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we are so glad that you have spoken words that cannot err, words that cannot falter. And they are to us sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb because they are forever true. Here is solid ground. And in a world of shifting sand, we're grateful for the certainty of your word. Give us a hunger and an appetite and a love for the scripture. Make us people of the book. And beyond that, Make us lovers of yourself, worshippers of the one true living God, Yahweh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.